0: Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. I'm an alcoholic. I'm you guys have a death wish when you put the clock behind the speaker's head. Okay. So, uh my experience with most alcoholics is they don't know when to shut up. And, uh, of course, I never talked before I quit drinking. <laughs> it's just something new that came over me since I sobered up. Uh, I understand about talking at AA meetings. Uh, the trouble I had was listening at AA meetings. Uh, but my sponsor informed me that, uh, and if you're a talker, I, I give this to you, that if I would just listen to what I said to other people about how they ought to live their lives and work their programs and try to do just half of it myself, I would probably survive. And uh, so far, it's worked just dandy. I would say that the greatest gift to my sobriety has been probably the greatest defect in my character, and that is thinking that I could run other people's lives better than they could. And that's called sponsorship. <laughs> when I was um, when I was new in Alcoholics Anonymous I was not involved in Alcoholics Anonymous other than uh, the big book, the steps, and uh, I had a sponsor that I would call and I called her maybe six, eight times the first year and I called her when my back was to the wall I called her when two things happened in my life the first thing that would happen would be Before I call Mary, I should figure out what's wrong with me so that I can tell her. And the second thing I would think would be, it doesn't matter why call her, I know what she's going to say anyway. And when those two things would trigger in my head, I would just pick up the phone and dial it. It was like a spiritual awakening. And she used to tell me, if you could figure out what was the matter with you, you wouldn't need Alcoholics Anonymous. So you don't have to know what's wrong in order to call your sponsor. You can just call and say, Eh, I feel lousy. I know what was wrong now as I look back on those phone calls. In every single case that I called my sponsor the first year I was sober, someone had hurt my feelings. I remember uh, the first time it happened. I was a lady with 11 years sober, and I didn't understand, you know, the etiquette of AA, and I said to her, I almost asked you to be my sponsor, but I asked Mary instead. And she attacked me. Uh, she said, well, you couldn't have stood to have me for a sponsor. I might have told her the truth. And just, why? And she just rose up like a vicious fire-breathing dragon. And I said, wow. Why is she doing this to me? I cried all the way home from the meeting. I was destroyed. Destroy Someone had hurt my feelings and um, I called my sponsor at 1 o'clock in the morning. That was the first time I ever called her And she said uh, Run the water <laughs> It was profound And I said why should I run the water and she said just go run the water and take the phone with you so that i can hear it running i said in the bathtub or in the sink <laughs> you know, i follow directions and uh i was crying so hard i couldn't argue with her and uh, so i went into the kitchen with the phone and i ran the water she said is the water very cold now <laughs> and i said yes the water's very cold she said pour a glass of water and drink it and i did and i figured now as i look back that might have given her just enough time to wake up although i <laughs> I don't know why she needed to be awake, because I was calling about the same thing all newcomers call about, sniveling because someone hurt my feelings, uh, and it really isn't necessary to be awake for any of your babies who are under a year sober. If they call in the middle of the night, just talk, because God will handle it. If you're lucky, you can listen. Just be awake enough to listen to what you say to them, because it will be an amazement to you how wise you become when you're working with new people. Well, what she told me didn't work, but it got me to sleep, and I didn't drink. And, and living in the house full of alcohol that I lived in, that was a miracle. And uh, so, anyhow, I, uh, I called her the next day. It was about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and I was still just destroyed, just blown away that this woman was 11 years. See, I had not socialized with any of the people in AA. I didn't go to the coffee shop much. I went once. I remember I used to go and order food and cry. And I thought that was so tacky. I just didn't, I don't know why. I was crying, trying to eat in public, and there wasn't any booze there. It was hard. I loved AA, except for the part where you didn't drink. Um, When they said, do you drink because you lack self-confidence, I said, oh, hell no, you know, until I didn't drink. And then I lacked self-confidence, you know, I really did. I didn't know I lacked it. I was drunk all the time. Um, And I didn't lack it drunk. Strangers didn't frighten me. I was looped all the time. What did I care what they thought? I knew how to handle people, and uh, then I got sober, and I couldn't eat the coffee shop. Um, and one night, I had a really tremendous rapport with the men in AA, too. Uh, didn't like them either. Didn't like the women. Didn't like anybody. I hear a lot of women say, I had to go to a lot of women's meetings because women saved my life in AA, and I hated women when I came in. And I just look at them, and I say, God, I don't like people that discriminate. I hated everybody when I came in without discrimination, men and women alike. And there aren't any meetings for that, so you just have to go to meetings. (laughs) I mean, there was the meeting of one. I was really the only person I trusted, and my kind of action got my ass into this program. So, you know, that gave me an idea how how much credibility I had in my own life. So anyway, I uh, had gone to this coffee shop one night, and uh, I cried, and I went to my car and left. I think the newcomers liked it. They could eat my food. And... (laughs) I always threw money down I was a high roller and uh, didn't have to be my money but I would flash it and uh, so anyhow um, this gentleman followed me down to my car and I'm sure he had a genuine concern about my tears and all that And I had a hot 60 days or something and he reached into the car to pat me on the shoulder and I rolled up the window on his arm (laughs) (laughs) I'll never forget the look on his face. No emotional involvement for the first year! You know, don't touch me! I got over that at about three, four years. Um, the touching part. Uh, I got over the emotional involvement part a lot quicker. Uh, leaped right into a meaningful relationship at slightly over a year. But anyway, so the next day, back to my track, Um I called my sponsor again with this same problem which was unresolved and i will tell you the pearl of wisdom that she gave me that finally allowed me to let go and let god she said think of poor lillian with her 11 years you see how badly you feel today well she's 11 years sober and she's been on this spiritual path all these years and think how much worse than you feel she feels and that made me feel fine but if lillian was feeling crummy too it was okay and then she, oh, I was so spiritual and forgiving. Um, then she gave me a pearl of wisdom. She was to repeat this many times. It's your 24 hours, It can start any time you want. It's ten minutes to two. The next 24 hours starts at two. You can be miserable for another ten minutes. And then at 2 o'clock, it's a brand new day. Oh, I used to want to punch her right in the mouth when she said, it's a brand new day. It's the first thing I ever heard her say, except when she introduced herself, she said, I loved her from the first moment, really. She said, my name is Mary, and I'm an alcoholic and a pill head and a Demerol freak. And if you want to go into what I used to do for a living, we'll take it up at a closed meeting. (laughs) And I said, that's my kind of chick, you know. I thought I was going to meet. Uh, I don't know who I thought I was going to meet here, but I wasn't good enough for it, whatever it was. But it didn't matter because I didn't like you anyway, and I didn't have to like you. Uh, My message is very clear tonight. Uh, You do not need the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous to keep sober. I believe you need the meetings because I believe everybody needs meetings if they're available. I will not set up to drink by saying I couldn't stay sober without meetings. I only have to go to them if there are some. If there aren't any meetings where I am, then I can stay sober without them. But if there are meetings where I am, I better have my app in one. And um, anyway, I didn't just fall madly in love with the fellowship. I immediately understood that it was just like being in the army. Just because we were all here didn't mean we had anything else in common. And I really looked at it like that. I didn't want what you had. I did not know there were any cliques in AA. They talked about them. I would hear people mention them quietly and subtly, all the ones that weren't in them, at the coffee shop. The people who are in them don't know there are any, but the people who are not in them are very aware of the clicks in AA. In fact, I was something like two or three years sober and somebody was talking about clicks in AA and I said, I don't know what you're talking about. Clicks in AA? There are no clicks in AA. And I looked around and I had nine of my babies all around me. And we traveled in (laughs) packs. Clicks in AA? I don't even know what you're talking about. Gray's my sponsor, you know. That's all right, dear. Just keep coming back. And if you really want to get it the way it really is, you can, here's my number. Oh, and uh, I'm glad I'm off that hook. Um, and I had to let myself off. I really, for a long time, I really thought I knew all those things about everybody's life. Fortunately, my kind of information didn't get anybody drunk that I know of. So anyway, my sponsor was, uh, she was, a, um, I used her for working the steps. And as far as I understood, Alcoholics Anonymous, that's what you use sponsors for, was for helping you to work the steps and to understand them. And, uh, you know, when your back was to the wall, you called them. And that was about it. I was 30 days sober when I took my fourth step and 31 days sober when I took my fifth. I remember going to a meeting the night. How I did it was I operate really well under pressure. I know most alcoholics aren't like that. But I like to have the hammer on me, and then I really perform well. So I made an appointment to take my fifth step on Sunday, and Saturday night I sat down to take my fourth. And um, I went to a meeting that night, and I said, I'm looking for a copy of the Hazelden Guide to the Fourth Step Inventory. And the guy there, he had about nine years, and he said, I don't have that pamphlet in this meeting. And I said, well, I have one at home, and I can't find it anywhere. He says, well, if you find it, burn it. <laughs> there's this funny blue book they have at the front of the room called Alcoholics Anonymous, and there's that other little funny blue book they call the 12 and 12, and he suggested that I go home, take out those two books, and that would keep me busy. I did not need to list the 283 possible variations of character defects and various sins to be committed in the world in order to take a good four step. What I needed to do was begin to learn to take a look at myself. So, I did that. I went home and took an inventory. And I took what I later heard people, a lot of people probably who hadn't taken four steps early, say, which is fine. I don't care when you take it. I don't care if you don't take it. We don't drink here, whatever that means to you. But for me, it was necessary to take it early. They accused me. I thought it was, I took it personal. You know, at open meetings where the guy you don't know says something about something and you take it personally. That I had taken a garbage inventory, and uh, I think that was probably true. I what I did is I had a little trouble with fear. I did not relate to the feeling of fear, and I was the only person in Alcoholics Anonymous without any resentments. Everybody talked about compulsions to drink alcohol and resentments, and I didn't have those two things. I did not know that in order not, in order to have a compulsion to drink alcohol, you have to not drink alcohol, and. Uh, <laughs> Every time I wanted a drink, I took one, so I, what would I know? i said, gee, I'd like a drink. Oh, okay, great, you have two. And uh, so, you know, as long as you keep doing that and taking a lot of pills all the time, you are not going to experience these ravaging, screaming cravings for a drink of alcohol where you drag yourself on the floor and throw up and all that stuff. The drink you can't keep down in the morning, I mean, alcoholics do that. I liked the drink I took in the morning, so it didn't count. <laughs> I was uh, over a year sober before I remembered Funny how the memory works um, against us, that I was spending $40 a month on a case of Tia Maria, which I drank in my morning coffee. And when they said, do you crave a drink in the morning? I said, no, because I didn't crave it. I liked it.
1: <laughs>
0: how do I know I didn't crave it? I never didn't take it. I always took it. I always was braced for the day. And it went down smooth as glass. I never shook when I drank it. I might have if I hadn't drank it, but I'll never know, will I? Because I always drank it, and uh, I never threw it up. It just slid right down. And it was the hardest drink to give up. And yet, because it was such a habitual drink, I didn't realize it was hard to give up because I liked drinking in the morning. I thought I just thought my coffee tasted sort of funny without it. And it took me years to get used to sugar. I mean, years. I, in fact, I never liked coffee until I got turned on to Tia Maria, and it was the way to get it in the morning. I, but all that came years later, right, these awarenesses. Like I was telling Ben today, I was over four years sober before I realized I was fired from my first two jobs because of episodes while drinking. And what I learned from that was not to drink at office parties. And what I learned from that immediately behind the thought of go drink at office parties was you cannot go to an office party and not drink, so I didn't go to office parties, Period because I knew I could not go there and not drink and I knew if I drank I would do something I would be fired for Monday with a man, someone's husband. I had several obsessions when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, one of them was other women's men. Psychiatrists once told me it was because I didn't want to make a total commitment to anything and I said, could be. I I really don't have any idea, but um, I haven't done that one yet, sober that I know of. Um, I don't ask a lot of nosy questions, you understand, but um, <laughs> I mean, one or two sneak in whose divorces aren't fine or something like that, but you know, it doesn't count. My sponsor told me very early in AA that I would do everything sober that I had ever done drunk or wish that I could. And my immediate reply was, Oh no, no, Mary, you don't know the way I drank and the things that I did, and some of those things I did when I wasn't drinking. I mean, I was a really bad person. And guess what, folks? <laughs> she was right. She was right. And uh it's been quite an experience, it's been quite an experience allowing myself to be a human being in sobriety. I made a list of the things that I thought I'm recently single. Well, I'm not recently single, but I'm recently liking being single. And uh, one of the reasons I didn't like being single and sober was because I made a list of the expectations of what I thought, probably what I had told all my sober single babies, right, karmic return, what I thought that a sober single woman should be, responsible for herself, capable of making decisions self-supporting through her own contributions, (laughs) and that's a spiritual experience. Um, Oh, man, that one. I had a hard time letting go of that. Um, I never took money, though, because I wasn't that kind of girl. I took things and pawned them. (laughs) I remember the first time I remembered going to the pawn shop to take my gold jewelry and diamonds that all my married boyfriends have given me to keep me quiet. (laughs) And as you can judge from my mouth, that took a lot of jewelry. (laughs) Well, they liked some of the stuff I said, you know. Um, But anyhow, I used to just truck down about every two months, man, trucking down to the old hawk shop across the street from where I was working, and I would dump my jewelry for the rent and then hustle around and sell some clothes or do something or rip somebody off or just enough cash to get it out of hock again and start flashing one more time. I remember one time I was, um, well, I had sort of a vampire syndrome going. I had a day life and a night life. My day life, I was a buyer in a department store, one of the better department stores in Kansas City. This is during one period. In fact, probably. I don't know if anybody will relate to this. My drinking before I came, just prior to coming to Alcoholics Anonymous was not the worst part of my story. I used to hit bottom and bounce. I would bounce to a new town, bounce to a new set of people. I would scare myself. I, even I got scared sometimes when I came to in that bar on the wrong end of town in Kansas City and had to call a friend of mine who was a cop not a friend, a guy that worked in the Dan department store where I was an executive off duty, he would patrol in uniform and I called him at work to come and get me out of there because I had a lucid moment and I knew I would never get away that night. There was no getting out the back door, There was—it was it was pay up time and I wasn't going to make it. And he came in uniform with another officer and escorted me out of that place and said, what in the hell were you doing in there? And I just said, well, you know, I went there at 7 o'clock at night, reasonably sober, in a taxi, because it sounded like a fun thing to do. I used to get bored a lot, and I didn't have anything else to do, so I thought I would go over there. And about 11 o'clock at night, 10, 11, 12, it started getting a little scary. I began to see the reality of the situation I was in. I didn't have a friend in the place, didn't know anybody. The bouncer was buying my (laughs) drinks. I was at a booth for eight alone. Funny, nobody wanted to dance with me or sit with me or anything. It wasn't really turning out to be much of a fun evening. He was just sort of standing at the end of the booth so that I couldn't get out. And uh, I got this sort of closed-in feeling. <laughs> and I went to the ladies' room and called the police. And several people heard me call the police from that phone, and the police don't come to that place. That's one of those places where there's, if there's a fight, they call the police after they're in the parking lot because everybody has warrants in there, right? Nobody calls the police. And so the word went out that we called, that I had called the police and they came and got me out. So this guy gives me this big lecture and by this time the bars have closed in Kansas City and, uh, so he stops at one of the friendly taverns and comes in and flashes his badge on one of the friendly bartenders and buys a bottle over the bar and we go to my apartment and get drunk. And his lecture kind of fell on deaf ears. But I have come close a lot of times. Now I know to, uh, getting in a little over my head with my drinking. And um, at this particular instance, my day day life and my night life sort of intermixed a little bit. And this one guy um, was investigating me at the store where I worked for shoplifting. And I heard this from some of the people that I knew on the street that peddled hot stuff. And this was the only job I had ever had where I didn't steal anything. And I was really resentful. I mean, I understand the word now, resentful. I was angry at him. And I went into my boss screaming in outrage. And I said, how could he do this? Sartain is investigating me. I have heard through the grapevine. And he says, well, he was one of those normies that does things right. And he said, well, let's find out why he's doing it. And he called him up, and he came down to the office, and he sat down. And he said, I understand that you're investigating this lady for, you know, possible theft, and I would like to know why or if it's true. And he just sat there, and he looked at me, and he said, you're sitting there, lady, in a pair of $55 alligator shoes. $200 suit from Italy got a $500 vicuna coat with a fox collar and cuffs hanging on the rack and you're making $90 a week If you were a detective, you would be investigating you (laughs) And I looked at him and I said you're right But where I get my clothes and and all that stuff is none of your business. He said everything everybody does here is my business And he just turned around and walked away and he was right And I realized I had begun to express to people that I was living beyond my means (laughs) rushing to the pawn shop to hawk my jewelry to pay the rent but thank god i never took money i'm really grateful that i never had to stoop to those (laughs) steps like alabama says you know when she took her inventory with uh she sobered up with a bunch of men there were no women there and and she took her fourth and fifth step and began working with others and a prostitute was checked into their place and uh they had sort of a Fidget farm kind of set up there in the old days. No doctors would have anything to do with anybody. And she was sitting with this lady through the night. And, and she came down and said piteously, oh, thank God I never had to go to those depths. And they just looked at her and said, Alabama, who in the hell do you think you are? You didn't have enough sense to charge. And besides, you didn't need the money.
1: <laughs> and that's
0: the only thing that separates you from her. Brains and needs. And I, oh, brother, women like that in Alcoholics Anonymous were willing to tell the truth, have saved my life. From the, from the podium, I don't mean, I'm not talking about one-to-one, that's the easy way. But to stand in front of a room of 200, 300, at the time I heard her, 1,000 people, and tell that story about Alabama Carruthers, to tell the truth about what it was really like. Not I used to have a cocktail or two too many, and now everything's fine that I've found God in my life and my husband's back. <laughs> because there are things, I think, in everyone's story that make them special and unique. They aren't bad things necessarily or moral, immoral. It has nothing to do with that. But each of us has something real to say about ourselves, some real thing inside of us to share. And uh, in the beginning, the only way I think the newcomer can experience those feelings is to hear them uh, at a meeting really that was my experience uh the little bit i was able to get from my sponsor helped, but i got a lot from speaker meetings a lot from conference speakers who were willing to tell the truth willing to take the risk that maybe it wasn't going to sound too slick on tape and um maybe they wouldn't get asked back you know and we all have that i think i do anyway i have that performer in me that i want everybody to love me and i don't want people to say she shouldn't talk like that and all that they said that about me in the bar i shouldn't talk like that and and I could go to other bars, you know, but there's only just so many meetings in the towns I go. You know, I mean, you know, you can just skate for so long. and then. But I don't know. Fortunately, I never fell for that, what I call the peer group pressure to perform at a certain level. I'm sober, blankety-blank length of time, and I ought to have it together like Fred over there. I mean, he comes to the meetings, and he just talks so good, and he says such wonderful things, and he is so spiritual, and he doesn't give a drunk-a-log. Oh, I love those people that don't like drunk Well, I'll tell you what, it dawned on me when I was a couple of years sober that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is absolutely perfect. I have no argument with that. Although the book is meant to be suggestive only, I followed their suggestions and it has worked for me. And so I believe that it was a God-inspired program and that it works absolutely when we work it. So obviously they don't need me to rewrite the steps. They do not need me to rewrite the book. They do not need me to tell you all, you know, how I think the tradition should be handled. They don't need me for much of anything, right? I mean, I can't fix AA. So they must need my story. That's the only reason I can figure out why I'm here. One out of 35 alcoholics ever even makes it to one AA meeting, And I'm sober. I'm here and I'm sober. By no wish of my own. I did not come to Alcoholics Anonymous to stop drinking. I brought someone to a meeting who had a problem with alcohol. And it wasn't me, kids. It was someone I was trying to fix because it was their drinking was inconvenient to me. And she's still drinking, and I'm almost seven years sober. So guess who got to the AA meeting? Guess who I was bringing to AA? But I didn't know that. And it dawned on me that AA must need my story, my real story, the one that really happened. And I believe that logs are an absolute essential to my staying sober, not only for me to remember what it was like, but for the new people to relate and identify. And I don't know about you, but i got better things to do on a Friday night. If my life had been just peachy keen except for bad breath, <laughs> or wino stink, if my life had been going really super fine before I got here except that I didn't have a warm, wonderful relationship with God in my life, then I'm sorry. Oh, do I sound like I need that? You also need that fourth class up here. God, do I look dehydrated? It's the wrinkles. I know it. Anyway, I feel that it's absolutely essential that I tell my story. Period. The way it really was. Not the way I wish it was. Not the glamorous way. My sponsor used to tell me, Grady, you're going to have to de-glamorize the drinking. Because <laughs> I, I was chic, you know. I mean, I sought lower forms of companionship when I drank. Uh I guess
1: <laughs> I
0: slummed, is that the same thing? <laughs> is that what they mean? By slipping down to the to the gay bars and to the and to the to the drag queen ball and to the jazz clubs and to the Well, I call that slumming. I thought all the chic people they wrote a song about that, didn't you know? Going to Harlem or something and uh I probably, most of them, went with friends. Uh, I went alone, but, I mean, I considered that slumming, and it was getting increasingly hard to find places to find those people that were lower forms of companionship. So when that would begin to happen to me, when I was having more and more difficulty, and the lower forms of companionship were even too low for me, like the night I had to call the police to get me out of the bar, I would move to another town, and I would start up here again, and then I would gradually work my way down, and then four years later I would move again, and I would gradually, you know, Four years four groups of people new town because the next group of people were unacceptable even to me even i couldn't go that low and uh, such contempt prior to investigation how do i know how low i could go um now i understand there is no too low for an alcoholic but anyway i would hit bottom and bounce and hit bottom and bounce and hit bottom and bounce and uh, by the time i got to alcoholics anonymous what i was was tired Uh, I did not relate to people talking about bottoming out. I was probably in better financial shape when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous than I've ever been in my life. I was living in Hawaii in an oceanfront house. Um, I was in a relationship. Well, none of those were so hot. Anyway, I mean, it was no worse than any of the others I've been in. I had ceased seeking love and romance in my life, and I was looking for a little stability. (laughs) I was beginning to burn out, folks. <laughs> the incidence ratio of my first several years of the gay single life had just about toasted my ass, and uh, <laughs> I was looking for uh, slightly more mellow pastures, and so on top of being exhausted, I was also bored.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I drank in bars right up until the very last minute, and uh, I drank... Seven up in bars for the first year. Uh, people say if you don't want to slip, don't go to slippery places, but if you're one of those people that doesn't hear that, uh, you can go to the bar and not drink. I will teach you how. Carry the big book. <laughs> I did it and it worked. I actually got eighty six out of a bar in Honolulu, Hawaii. It was a gay bar, and I got thrown out of it because I had gone straight And giving everybody the 20 questions. (laughs) The owner came up to me. She was an Alfie for sure. And she said, I've been down on everything but the Titanic. And you can get your ass out of here. And she threw me out. I was nine months sober. And she threw me out of the bar. I couldn't believe it. Man, you know, 86 out of whatever that dump's name was. The cocktail center, as I recall. Did several years of drinking there. Those weren't lower forms of companions. Those were my friends. And uh, I was, no, seriously, I mean, it was sort of dingy, but but I felt comfortable there. I mean, what's a lower form of companionship if you're at home with them? I heard one lady said, I came to A when I couldn't find any lower forms of companionship. I was the lower form of companionship, and I couldn't stand to be alone. So uh, maybe that's where I was at. I do know that I had been to a few meetings with this person and uh, I drank at three weeks and I figured anybody that could stay sober for three weeks as easy as I had didn't have a real problem with alcohol and at three weeks I drank and when I it took me about three days to get enough and enough to me meant throwing up or passed out and usually one happened before the other with any luck and uh, that's why I slept in the bathroom, because I was never sure how it was going to go, you know? <laughs> you know when you pass out and then you go, oh, shit, I'm not done throwing up, and then you have to run all the way to the bathroom, and messy business. And so I had become a habit, too. I had large, thick, terry cloth towels, because if you keep blankets in your bathroom, people begin to catch on, <laughs> that you're sleeping there. So, uh, but those big towels, you know, that they have now, they're really nice, and they work good, and I used to sleep there. So I got up and I woke up, came to, I keep trying to get honest, I came to in the bathroom and I laid my head against the toilet bowl in a familiar stance and I felt the chill of it on my face and it was cold and it was good and I looked at that sign in the back and it said American Standard and I knew where I was, I knew where I was, I looked around and I was alone, that was a plus, I was home, that was a plus. And uh, all in all, it wasn't a bad day. You know, that's three pluses, cold toilet bowls, you know, all that. And I thought uh, that one phrase that I could have killed my sponsor for, that minute and every minute I've ever thought of it since, I had heard her say it at a meeting, it's a brand new day. (laughs) Isn't that spiritual? And you're listening to Grady Hit Bottom now, folks. It's a big moment. Uh, (laughs) I thought it's a brand new day. And the greatest thing I got going for me is this toilet bowl on my face. (laughs) I think I'm doing something wrong. And that was the crashing crescendo of my drinking, folks. Puking one more time and thinking, hmm, maybe there is a little more to life than this. And uh, so I called Alcoholics Anonymous that day for myself. And I said, I'll remember it till the day I die. I drink vodka. I drink it out of a bucket. That's what they call them, the Mai Tai glasses in Hawaii. I drink it out of a bucket. I drink really fast. I drink every day. Do you think I'm an alcoholic? You sure sound like one to me, honey. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, they're shilling. I could have said anything, and she'd have said I was an alcoholic. I could have said I drink Lydia Pinkham's, and she'd have said, You better go to a meeting, sweetheart. You sound pretty sick. So... You know, part of me wanted to believe it was that simple, and a very, very small part it was, a very tiny part it was, that wanted to believe that I was an alcoholic. Could it be that simple? And a very large part of me suffered from an acute degree of thirst, which I suffered from for approximately a year and four months in this program. During that time, by the grace of a higher power, because as I look back on it, I've never been able to follow directions in my life. I've never done what anybody told me. I always did the exact opposite. But something, maybe it was the suggested part of this program that I didn't feel a big hammer. So it sort of somehow became, sounded like a good idea to work the steps. And it was my idea. And I liked that. And I worked them. And I think that's what really saved my life. I was not into sponsorship. (laughs) I wasn't working with others. I never gave anybody my phone number. No one ever called me. It came as no surprise. They didn't know my phone number. My sponsor couldn't remember my name. (laughs) She still calls me Brady, with a B. And it's been a long time, folks, and she still does it, And uh, because she still can't remember my name. I made a real impact on her life. Well, you have a baby sometime that calls you six times in a year, and you won't remember her name either. It's probably good for my humility. I probably. I'm sure it was just wonderful. I couldn't believe that they weren't just dying to have me in Alcoholics Anonymous. I would see her at meetings occasionally. I don't know where she went to meetings. I used to think she's going to get drunk any minute this lady doesn't go to enough meetings. I was going to three a week, whether I needed them or not. And uh, reading that funky old 24-hour book, she made me read that for a year and then I threw it out. Um, It was so Christian and I was so screwed up that I just you know, it, everything reeks of Christianity to me except the big book and the 12 and 12. I was just terrified of that whole area of my life. I just couldn't look at it. That Grady is unacceptable. Grady is unacceptable. That's all it meant to me is I can't live up to those tenants. I cannot manage. I can't do that. I already proved I couldn't do it. You guys always wanted too much out of me. I can't do it. I can't do it. And I don't have to do it to stay sober. I don't have to go back to church. I don't have to try to be that good little Catholic girl and pretend I had not discovered men in booze. I don't have to be like that to stay sober. All I have to do is work these steps and go to meetings. So simple, and don't take the first drink. And in my case, pills. And I think in every other alcoholic's case, pills. But that's my opinion. And funny cigarettes and things you rub on and stick in places that make you feel funny. Can't have any of that. Even if it only just makes you numb, you can't do it. (laughs) It doesn't even have to make you feel good. You can't do it anyway. Um, uh, That was, I don't know about you, but that was never a prerequisite. I did not necessarily take a pill just to feel better. Sometimes I did it just to feel different. I didn't care if it only took me sideways. It would take me away from where I was at right now. So I had to know that even if it wasn't going to make it better, I couldn't take it anyhow. But I didn't have to be good. By any standard, except my own, which I have later found were also too high. Um, cause it wasn't the Catholic Church that warped my head. It was Grady that warped her head. And it took me many, many years to, to let Jesus down off the cross I put him on. You know, <laughs> oh man, I was, I was out to get those Christians. I had on a, a cross but an amulet it was a piece of jewelry to me, it was turquoise and, A lady came up to me and she said, oh, are you a Christian? I was a year and three months over at the time, going and growing. I believe my pitch that night at the meeting had been something like, I cannot understand why anyone would hold on to a character defect or stand between them in a closer relationship with their higher power. Something mellow like that to hammer the new people with. And she came up to me and she said, are you a Christian? I said, oh, hell no, I'm no Christian. She said, but you're wearing a cross. I said, well, you don't see anybody dying on it, do you? You don't have to be Christian to be an AA. But I didn't have any resentment, so I'm really lucky that I didn't have any resentments because, you know, resentments are the number one killer of alcoholics. If you have any resentments out there, you can stay sober with resentments. It won't hurt you. I did it for years. I mean, when they said, lift your resentments, I said, well, just one more way. I'm not like those people. I don't have any resentments. I didn't know that in order to understand what a resentment feels like, you have to have something to compare it to. And when every single thing in your life is the source of resentment, when you resent everything and everyone in your life, then you don't think you have any resentment. It's just, it was just the way I felt. I didn't, I didn't label it resentment because I didn't have any, I didn't say my days were bad. I didn't have any good days. It was just the days were like that. I never, I used to go to meetings and I would hear people say, I'm getting in touch with my feelings. <clears throat> and I would have this picture, I, I think we all get little mental pictures, I get them, they're more fun now, but um, I get, I have selective viewing in my mind now, but anyway, I used to, <laughs> I used to um, visualize people reaching down inside their throats and grabbing out these feelings <laughs> from their guts because feelings are always... In your gut, right? And they would reach into their guts at the gut level, which was always level with the table. They would reach in there, and they would bring out this feeling, and they would show it to the group. And everybody said, "Oh, well, here's what you do about that." yes yeah, anger. Uh huh. Well, you pray about that. Resentment. well you pray about that. Jealousy. Well, you better pray about that. And. Uh, You know, anger is a luxury alcoholics can't afford. And, and gee, I was never mad about anything. I never got angry. I, in fact, I never got mad right up until the night I tried to kill my husband. (laughs) I had a lady one time at a speaker meeting at a conference, and uh, she said, I got really, really angry the first time I got sober, and I ran home and took a fourth step. And I said, my pen must have been out of ink. I tried to murder somebody. (laughs) Because, I mean, that's the way my feelings came to me, like a big explosion. When I finally owned anger, it was murderous rage. Now I'm almost seven years sober. Sometimes I get angry, and I can deal with anger. Well, I'll tell you, sure as hell don't pray about it. I sure as hell don't pray about it. I give myself permission to be mad first. I found out I can't let go of something that I refuse to admit that I have. I can't pray away something that I don't own first. I have to own it. I have to say I'm teed off. I have to... Yell and scream and all that. I don't have to do it at the person that I'm angry at. Sometimes I can do it before it gets that bad. Sometimes I can't. But mostly I can work it out with somebody else or alone screaming in a room or with a neutral party until I get the rage out of the way. And then if there's something to work out, I can. Usually there isn't. (laughs) But, you know, usually it's all a figment of my imagination. But I have to own it first. I have to own it. I see a lot of denial of feelings in Alcoholics Anonymous, people saying, well, I was jealous, but that's not a good feeling, so I'm not going to have it anymore. Oh, good luck. (laughs) Good luck. Um, I experienced envy yesterday, and I prayed, and it was gone. Oh, terrific. When did you go and steal the stuff the guy had that you wanted? Two weeks later? But you had calluses on your knees, right? You held out for two weeks. I mean, I'm perfect. I'm a whole person, I'm a real person, I have good feelings, bad feelings, I have feelings I can handle, I have feelings I can't handle, I have feelings I can control, feelings I can control for ten minutes, feelings that I didn't know I had until they're out of control. I'm a person that doesn't drink. And I just, I am really sorry to report to you that I will not be canonized by acclamation while alive. Because I'm no saint. And I thought that was okay for the rest of you guys, and I could understand how you would have trouble getting terrific in Alcoholics Anonymous. But with my educational background and the lack of brain damage that I had, I surely should have been able to do better than you. But guess what? I'm just another person, a human being that simply smells better than she did seven years ago. I don't drink anymore, and I gradually, over the period of time, allowed myself just to be the best Grady I can be today, and if all I did all day long was not drink or take anything, then I am a success today. I am a success today, and that is as true today as it was when my sponsor told it to me 10 days sober. He said, if you go to bed tonight and the only thing you did right was not take anything, honey, you did enough. And it's truer today even, I think, than it was then because as I am sober longer and longer, I find the expectations I have laid on myself to reach certain pinnacles of spiritual growth in this program and to manifest certain types of behavior which the group will simply adore me for. finally dawned on me there is no time off for good behavior. Think about that while you're being wonderful at the AA meeting. Virtue is its own reward, my mother used to say. And I had to be virtuous for a long period of time to find out that that means there ain't no payoff in it.
1: <laughs>
0: I mean, that sounds so spiritual when Mother said it. Patience is a virtue, right? Yeah, and it'll make you mad, too. you Because know, there's no payoff in it. There was no payoff in it for me. Being wonderful has not been a, you know, it's okay if it makes me feel good to be wonderful, but I don't have to be wonderful to be okay. I don't have to sit and survey everybody and decide to be a little bit better than everybody else in order to just be good enough, to just be good enough. And I'm finally beginning to see that it's just okay to be a human being, a human being, whatever that is today. My sponsor told me when I was very, very new, she said, you come to Alcoholics Anonymous, and they said, with the real Grady O'Hara please stand up, and they've all sat down at once. And you're gonna spend the rest of your years in Alcoholics Anonymous glancing over to see who stands up when they call your name. And I'll tell you what. It's the absolute truth. The absolute truth. I'm continually shocked at the woman that answers when my name is called. I mean, really surprised. Sometimes at how spiritual I can be. Mostly I'm surprised. I'm never surprised when I say surprising things. Especially shocking things. That never surprised me because I did that when I drank, you know. My idea was blow you out first, and then I knew when the rejection was coming. Wow. <laughs> I didn't have to wait around or try and trust you or, or worry about whether you really liked me or was, were going to be my friend. I would just sort of stand around for five minutes and figure out what it would take to just blow you away. And then I would dump it on you instantly. boom, <clears throat> And then you were gone, and I didn't have to worry about it. I didn't have to get hurt. And... Um, so when I shock people, or I try to, I don't suppose I shock too many people in AA, I've a few Al-Anons here and there, I've heard a couple of them pop off and swing through those doors when I've been talking, but, uh, oh, I did it the other night. I gave it, I was in 20 minutes was tell them what it was like sleeping with all of their husbands while I drank in the bar. <laughs> Because you know what? I didn't want to do another Al-Anon round robin. And I figured out, you know, those forms of manipulations work really good. But unfortunately, I told them all the truth. And they called me the next day and asked me to do another one in August. (laughs) Because all I told them was, if you're worried, you know, I talked in the big book about that a lot of times in the chapter to wives about these romantic encounters in the bar. And I said, if you're worried, if you think possibly your husband might have had a little side action going out there in the saloon, don't worry, he'll be back, because she doesn't want him either. <laughs> and I said, you know, I was sober several months before God allowed me to hear what a man said about what I looked like when he woke up in the morning. Because <laughs> it was me, kid, you know. The names are changed to protect the guilty, but it might as well have been me. Oh, God, and I woke up with this dog, right? <laughs> and I'm going, oh, I didn't drink in bars. I drank at home. I take it all back, <laughs> Oh, man, and I told him, I said, man, you know, it's really romantic, you know, where you throw up and you pass out and all that. It's really special, really warm, wonderful, understanding, compassionate, meaningful relationships with us in the bar, banging plastic forever, and just lying to each other. It's terrific. You just plug in that tape and it rolls. I mean, we all know how to do that, right? Well, I shouldn't say we all know how. Oh, my God, it's wet. (laughs) Shades of the past. Um... You know, picking up those old yucky wet cigarettes off the bar and trying to light them, they look chic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so
0: I i spent a lot of really exciting time in AA for, oh, about mm, almost 18 months trying to fully concede to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic of your type. You know, in Chapter 3, they have a couple of little words that almost drove me to drink. And that was, uh, no real alcoholic ever recovers control and later they talk about alcoholics of our type and alcoholics of our kind and i would sit in meetings and i would think maybe i'm just a potential alcoholic i could probably drink 10 more years before i got as bad as that one i'm not like them uh, maybe I'm an alcoholic, but maybe I'm not an alcoholic of their type. I wonder what their kind of alcoholic is like. Uh, I later figured out that real alcoholics of their type and kind can't drink alcohol in safety because alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control their drinking. But I, I didn't have, you know, I skipped over that little sentence in the big book that says alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control their drinking. I didn't, you know, my sponsor used to say to me, okay, Grady. If you take a drink tonight, can you absolutely guarantee me what you're going to do? And I said, I can give you about a six to four. (laughs) The fact was I could probably guarantee her exactly what I would do and where I would end up, but I didn't want to tell her what it would be and where it would be. Because I probably would regret ending up there. And i that was enough to snag me for a while at least, that I couldn't predict my behavior if I took the first drink. And, uh, but there was that deep inner grinding, that differences, differences, differences. And, uh, I just have a message to share with you. If you think you don't belong here and you want out, you're in the right place.
1: Because no real (laughs)
0: alcoholic, no real alcoholic of my type wants to quit drinking. And by every form of self-deception and experimentation, you will try to prove yourself, exception to the rule, therefore, an (laughs) Al-Anon or whatever. (laughs) There must be an Al-Anon out there that's just about to jump the traces. I don't know where she is or he is, but uh, we've gotten more than one of you that way. Just give up. It's so much easier than sitting there and saying things like, well, I had a problem with alcohol once, but since my husband quit drinking, I've been fine. <laughs> you know. And in fact, you quit drinking, but you just don't want to say it out loud. You just don't want to say it out loud because you're going to think all those people in AA won't think you really are one. You know, I've actually run into that. These al and I knew one of them, was 17 years in al She and her husband got a divorce, and she went out, and she cut a swath through Santa Cruz that could be seen from Salinas.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and she'd come by the Alana Club just ripped, and she'd say to me, do you think I'm an alcoholic? <laughs> just drunk, you know? And I'd say, oh, Christ, just come to the meeting, you know? When are you going to quit? But she wanted to get a story together for it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think she figured when she sobered up, she'd have to go back to her husband and she wasn't finished playing yet.
1: <laughs>
0: but see, al can play without drinking, and alcoholics can't. You know, I, I found that out. Or people that don't have a problem with alcohol. But alcoholics have this tremendous conscience and guilt and, and all these feelings, and they're not allowed to be real people, and they have to drink to do all that stuff. But uh, if you believe you have to drink to do all that stuff, you're going to get drunk. My message to you is you have to be a human being. And if there's anything that you think you cannot do sober, you will drink. I used to say, well, I just recently broke through another reservation. I, I used to think I'd broken through all of them. I thought when I fully conceded to my innermost self that I was really an alcoholic of your type, uh, which took about a year and a half and it finally happened one day and it was very spiritual and very dramatic and uh, As Alabama said no sense in casting pearls to swine. It wouldn't mean anything to you You know the experiences really are very personal and I I have shared this at podiums And I just god I just think it's probably the most dramatic moment in my life and it just falls like a like a tingling breath as they say tinkling breath as they say in the Bible the other non-conference-approved literature, and uh, (laughs) I go to retreats once in a while, a little little of that slide in, you know, I've, I've resolved that, but I have found that deeply personal spiritual experiences that I share with other people are deeply personal and spiritual to me, and other people smile and say, oh, that's very nice, and then they tell you yours, and you smile and say, that's very nice. And that's because they're deeply personal. That's because God spoke to me in that moment. I have had messages sent to me in saloons more than once. Uh, and I've I've lived another day because of the messages God sent me in bars. And when I tell people about that, they look at me like I'm a an acid freak on a flashback.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean, really. They just look at you like, oh, yeah, uh-huh, sure. And you got a letter from God last week, too, right? <laughs> Keep coming back. So it doesn't matter why i fully conceded to my innermost self if you don't drink long enough it will happen don't drink and go to meetings it'll happen but it was important to me to to go through the paces and i kept saying i was an alcoholic even though i part of me didn't believe it and what i kept saying to myself was grady i had come to love alcoholics anonymous certainly the program i was beginning to reap the benefits in my own personal feeling nature my feelings i felt better I was beginning to kind of like myself a little bit. I was beginning to not attack people quite so much. I could almost allow someone to touch me. It was getting close. Uh, I was only a couple of years away from that, and um, I would recoil a different fire. They talk about that with alcohol in the big book, and with me it was everything and everybody. If I bumped into a table, I would go, uh, what do you mean by that? Um, I was slightly self-obsessed and self-directed, for a short period of time, but it passed. Um, Never that way anymore. Anyhow, um, so I finally surrendered, and I fully conceded to my innermost self, but I I have to say that that was only the beginning of beginning to face the reservations that I had when it came to drinking alcohol. I had a lot of reservations. Um, One of my biggies was hating alcoholism and hating being an alcoholic. I would say well I'm grateful that I know I'm an alcoholic I am if I'm an alcoholic you know since I'm an alcoholic I'm grateful to be sober thank God for AA and all that jazz but I wouldn't be grateful to have leukemia either I would not find cancer to be a spiritual experience and why be grateful for a disease and that went on and on for years and years and years I said this in a meetings over and over and over again and uh, I was able finally to glimpse some of the options my life could have had if I had not been an alcoholic. I was able finally to surrender and uh, say, thank God, I am an alcoholic. Thank God I'm an alcoholic, without any reservation at all. And how that happened for me was my sponsor of 19 years sober said to me the last time she saw me not getting my own way and screaming and beating on a table and saying, I hate being a handicapped person having to come to these meetings for the rest of my life. Every time something goes wrong, I come here over and over and over again, and I have to snivel and cry at these goddamn meetings, and I'm sick of it. I hate alcoholism. It's a killer. I've just identified another body at the morgue. It's all very dramatic. And um, hating alcoholism, and she looked at me, and she smiled, and in the six years, she had heard me yell like this. She had never said a word, and she looked at me, and she said, It's a reservation to drink, Grady. I hope you work it through. And she just very tenderly smiled and walked away from me. And I yelled behind her, Oh, no, I have no reservations. And she just smiled, and she didn't say anything, because nobody can work those reservations through for you. You have your own set, and you got to work them through yourself. There's no magic answer. And I believed her. I said, Maybe that's true. And so I just stopped saying it. I stopped saying I hated being an alcoholic. I stopped saying that I hated alcoholism. It didn't change the way I felt, but I just quit reinforcing it, okay? And then within 30 days, I was standing at a podium just like this, and it hit me. It overwhelmed me from one end of my being to the other, not just my body, although it was completely physical, but my spirit in absolute gratitude for the disease of alcoholism in my life, the precious and beautiful gift that was given to me, precious and beautiful gift of alcoholism. I could have been my sister, who, it, it really was, it, is, it could be worse, kids. She's on a farm in Kansas. She has sheep, and kids, and a husband, and the PTA, and she just became chairwoman of the Republican Party. There are worse things to have than
1: alcoholism.
0: <laughs> you know, resentment is the number one killer of alcoholics, it says in the big book. And somebody once said that's before they found out that boredom is the number one killer of alcoholics. And that's been my experience. I happen to be the kind of person that likes a lot of, I I like a high incidence ratio in my life. And I used to think that one of the things I thought that a single sober woman was, was always there when needed. Kind of like American standards, you know. (laughs) And taken for granted about as much most of the time in my experience and no time off for good behavior. Remember, no gold medals for always being there for the sick ones. And uh, you get to not drink. That's sort of a, what I guess they call that a fringe benefit in the Uptown meeting. And uh, Skid Row, we're just goddamn lucky to be alive another day, you know. I mean, unfortunately, I didn't hit Skid Row only in passing, but I identified more in Skid Row. I have identified more in fellowships on 2nd Street at 11 o'clock at night than I ever have in los gatos or wherever your upper end is i don't I, maybe i'm in it <laughs> treading on thin ice again you know bob hope has professional writers to check that stuff out before they come you know and they and he doesn't offend all the locals but my experience has been that i relate more to to uh <laughs> the people that are willing to admit that their life isn't just peaches and cream since they found god just isn't keen since uh the wife came back, and they've gotten their insurance company back, and they've got their car back and their kids back, and God is in their life, and now everything's just whizzing along. I've just never had a moment in sobriety that I didn't feel was a miracle and a gift from God. Well, folks, that has not been my experience. You know, I would just love to share that with you. If you had another hour, I would go into my meaningful relationship in AA, but I think we only have 20 minutes. I had one of those. Um... One of the reasons I have so little experience with being single and sober was that I have been either married or frigid the entire time that I have been sober. (laughs) And so I would sit there with these ladies that I sponsored who were going through the throes of trying to get laid sober, and is it okay, and should you get on top, and all that stuff. (laughs) Everything's a decision when you're sober. you got to think about all that stuff. I would say very spiritual and uplifting things. You know, I I believe in giving people something to shoot for, and I and I gave them a target instead. Um, and I would say wonderful, warm, spiritual things to them, like, "Well, dear, I personally am not into uh, meaningless and impersonal sexual relationships in sobriety. There's nothing wrong with it, of course, for you." But it's simply an area that I haven't had any experience in by the grace of God. (laughs) So possibly you ought to talk to someone else newer than I am on the program. But I never judged them. (laughs) So like I said, I either didn't want to do it or I was getting plenty. (laughs) Easy to say. I used to sit in meetings and hear people say things like, "Well, me and my girlfriend just broke up," and or other cute things like, "I'm I'm sober now and I deserve a meaningful relationship." And I would sit there and I would say, "Advertising in the meeting." <laughs> <laughs> That's not what A is for. Well, I got a message for you. That is what AA is for. If you have a need, bring it to us. We will transfer.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: There's someone here that. At the same place you're at, wherever that is, and you can do it and not drink. <laughs> if you cannot do it and not drink, slam it in a window.
1: <laughs> and if you're a girl,
0: you're going to have to join my convent. I'm going to start. I was going I was, before I figured out how to rationalize this whole mess, I. Uh... Did you get the word? Uh, rationalize? I still haven't quite let myself off the hook, but. I was going to start a convent for exhausted alcoholic women.
1: (laughs) Every 90 days,
0: you got a weekend pass, and when you came back home, you got absolution when you walked through the door. (laughs) No names, no dates, no places. Just one continuous, meaningless experience with absolute permission and absolution. And then for 90 days, you got to be wonderful again. One lady asked me, how long does it take for your cherry to grow back? And I said, I don't know. Every time I try to find out if it's back yet, I lose it again. Oh man. But you know what I really discovered? I had this really meaningless experience. It was totally sexual. And in fact, I believe I mentioned to the gentleman that, that sober I never did it with strangers and he had ten minutes to tell me something really important about himself. <laughs> I mean, really. And, uh, and what I did was I, I did it, right? And I liked it. And I thought, oh wow, you know, that's the drinking life, Grady. That's what it used to be like. And it really messed with me, and I thought about it a lot, and I really worried about it a lot. And I went, I am in group therapy now, where I can be real. (laughs) Tired of being real in AA, there's no payoff there. And they're very loose in group therapy, let me tell you. They give you absolute permission to do everything. And then they want you to come back and tell them all about it, because they're not doing anything. (laughs)
1: I told them about
0: what I was gonna do this weekend and there will be no one absent from my group on Monday. (laughs) They're gonna call all their friends and tape it. They love me in group too, I'm very entertaining. Um, Not very real, but I'm very entertaining. Um, But anyhow, so I talked about it in group and I talked about it in AA and I I didn't talk about it too much in AA because I didn't know how I was gonna resolve it and I didn't want to get a bad reputation. Very concerned about my reputation in AA. Don't want anybody to think bad about me. you know talk about self-obsession. Who cares what I'm doing? Everybody. <laughs> They're all watching me. I know it. And I have to perform at this certain level because after all, after all of what? Uh, I don't know. After all, I have a lot of expectations of myself. So anyway, what I did was it dawned on me that that was another reservation to drink alcohol. It was another reservation to drink because I had placed another limitation on my sobriety. I had said, You can be human in all other areas of your life except in your sexual matters, Grady. You're not allowed to be a real person and have needs and wants and feelings and desires like anybody else. You're not allowed to need somebody sober. That's not okay, Grady, sober. And guess what? I want people. I need people. I'm a human being, and I have to be able to express that and experience it sober, or I will get drunk. One more reservation out of the way. So I don't know what the next reservation is, but I hope it's as much fun as the last one. (laughs) Because I I find that the longer I'm sober, the more freedom I receive from my higher power to accept myself. I have experienced a relationship with God in this program that I cannot put into words, but of course you know I'm going to try. I think that when I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous, they're giving me permission to get a God of my own understanding was good, and it worked for me. And I liken it to a child who gets a little coloring book that has the numbers on it. And my sponsor taught me to draw the line, that straight line, from one to two, and from two to three, and three to four. And I got sort of a line drawing of a higher power that worked for me. And I have spent the last almost six years filling in the colors. I spent a lot of time putting God in a box. I built a box that God would fit in for me, and I labeled it God. And I've spent the last several years letting God out of the box. Letting God be as big as God can be for me. God is. And God is absolute. And God is absolute love. And absolute love does not judge. Absolute love does not forgive. Absolute love absolutely loves and I have gradually begun to absolutely love myself to say I am the best Grady I can be today I walked outside just before the meeting just to take a few minutes this is probably the least nervous I have been when I spoke the more I speak the more I realize I always get nervous because I'm afraid I'm going to fail I'm afraid I'm going to go blank don't you just love it I could make something up for an hour but
1: uh, you deserve more
0: than that. I, w- I really like it when the power takes over, and I think tonight he's going to forget that I'm in Fresno, and, you know, I'm going to have to tell the truth about the facts, and I'm going to have to leave out the part where God entered my life and changed me, this inside me that's warm for me today, the inside me that loves me today. And I walked out there, and I was walking around, the sun was going down, and I thought, well, here I am, God. Here I am. And you just love me. You just love me. And you know what? That's enough. God, that's all. You don't have to make me good. You don't have to heal them through me. Always through me, you understand. It's a gift, of course, and do give credit to God, but come and pat me on the back. <laughs> and buy my tapes, right? Oh, man. You know, because this can be a real ego trip. Uh, it is an ego bullshit. Could be. It is an ego trip, and uh, and I love it, but I understand it. I understand it today, and I don't have to be wonderful for God to love me. God just loves me, and I don't have to act right. And there's no special thing that I have to do that any other human being in the world does not have to do. I am a human being that cannot drink alcohol or take any other mind-altering chemical. Other than that, there really isn't much difference between me and any other human being certainly no difference in the amount of love that God sends to me regardless of who I am being today and it finally dawned on me and it's taken years I'm telling you years to let myself off the hook for the person that I was and I think that maybe that's part of of letting myself be a human being today is that I had judged myself so harshly for the human being I was then instead of really realizing and owning The things I used to say to other people that, Grady, you weren't a bad person. I used to tell my babies, look, Joe, honey, you weren't a bad person. You were just trying to survive, man. You needed a lot of love and you weren't getting it. And you needed a lot of strokes and you weren't getting it. And, man, you needed to be held and you needed to know you were okay and you didn't have that. And so anything that you did to get enough love to survive long enough to get here was okay. Anything you did to get here was okay kid you're not bad you're a survivor and everything you did was just to survive all that fear all that fear and all of that lack of feeling and all that deadness and all that no goodness that you felt everything you did every moment that you reached out for anything was just to survive another minute another night another day and you're not a bad person you're not bad and finally I had to come to the day when I said Grady you're not bad you're no different from any other human being in Alcoholics Anonymous. You just survived long enough to get here. And you did whatever it took to survive. If you had to hurt somebody, if you had to hurt somebody, it wasn't a question of, well, I think I'll get up on Wednesday and go over and hurt somebody. There was a real threat, a real experienced threat. There was a real fear. There was a real terror in me. There was a real, real feeling in me that I wasn't going to make it, that I wasn't going to get enough of whatever it was it was going to take to survive. And I reached out and I grabbed it wherever I could find it. And if I grabbed it from a stranger, so much the safer, so much the safer. Because I couldn't pay any of it back, you see, because I was so dead inside. I was so dead. I couldn't have given anything back to anybody, so I had to take it from people I didn't know somebody that i loved that was near me might want something back and i didn't have anything to give them because i was dead all i could do was just rip off enough from them to make it one more day but i couldn't get enough to have anything to overflow i was dead and i finally had to finally maybe say to myself maybe that's what the message grady you weren't a bad person You just survived with the only tools that you had to survive with. And now I have a different set of tools. And now I lead a spiritually directed life, which means I can be the best Grady I can be today. And if all that means is that I didn't drink all day, then it's good enough for God. And if it's good enough for God, it ought to be good enough for Grady. Thank you very much.